It's a blessing to be with you here this morning. As Bill said, my name is Jeff, and uh, I've been the lead pastor of Revive AV Christian Fellowship in Lancaster for the past three and a half years, and I'm kind of in transition right now. We we raised up a um, lead pastor in my stead to pastor Revive AV House Church. We had run a, uh, upon some financial difficulties over this last year, and through that process, a group of folks kind of brought that church into a house church, and I went into transition, kind of helping that church to get on its feet, and I really wanted to share some praise reports with you here this morning, because I know sometimes when you've invested in a ministry, and you kind of have a vision and understanding of where that's supposed to go, and it doesn't go in that direction, there can be a sense of disappointment. I know for me and my family, there's been that sense of disappointment, but in that, we've begun to see what God was doing. That sometimes we kind of plan out what our target is going to be, and we begin to work in that direction, but by God's grace, He steers us to where He really wants us to be, and that's exactly what He's done, and we've begun to see why it is and, and how it is that He's been working in that way. So I wanted to share with you that first of all, this last year, 2018, there were actually two sisters that came to our church. They were both alcoholics. They gave their lives to Christ. We baptized them and they're still in our home fellowship today. So that's an awesome and, and praiseworthy thing that happened in 2018. Absolutely. So that's been pretty cool to see God delivering them from their alcoholism and giving them a new life and a new heart. But one of the things we began to look at as we actually were blessed with a building over the last couple years, but eventually couldn't begin paying for some of the bills that were there, was we realized that we had an incredible opportunity to multiply what God has given us in a unique way. And you think about the parable of the talents. For those of you who don't know the parable, Jesus talks about um, this, this um, administrator who looks at some of his workers and he says, you know, I'm going to give you uh, this many talents, I'm going to give this person that many, and then finally the third person a specific allotted amount as well. And eventually when these workers come back, he rewards them for the multiplication of their talents. And it didn't matter if they went from 1 to 6,000 or 1 to 10, he really just rewards them for building interest upon what it is that he gave them. And as we began to think about what God had given us in this building and with some of the resources around us, we had entered into a sponsorship of a church plant in our area to Nigerian refugees. And their pastor had fallen upon some hard times as well and wasn't able to get refugee status. And so we began praying with him and we actually sent him back last August to begin an orphanage in Nigeria. Now, the thing about that is, some of you might not know, but Nigeria is the second most orphaned country in the entire world. So right now, there are 12.5 million orphans in Nigeria. 12.5 million. If you include those who are at risk of being orphaned right now, it's 17.5 million. Think about all of those children without parents. 
And so we looked at James chapter 1, verse 26 and 27 that says, Pure and undefiled religion is this, to care for orphans and widows in their distress. And then we looked at the whole Old Testament where we think that God's people were usually being judged for idolatry. And what you always see when God's upset at His people is that they're not caring for the disenfranchised. They're not caring for the orphan, the widow, and the poor amongst them. And so God really burned our heart for these orphans in Nigeria, and it just so happens that we had a connection with this refugee, and as we looked at the resources God had given us, we realized that we could sell the property that we had been blessed with, and literally outright fund an orphanage and support it without any other sponsorship for five years. And so that is what we're in the process of doing right now, is sponsoring this orphanage, fully funding it, and going and purchasing the land for it to be established by 2020. So that's also something worth praising God for. Also, we became the first church in Southern Baptist known history. And I say known history because I'm sure the Lord was already doing some stuff that we just didn't know about. But the first Southern Baptist church in known history to target the unreached people group, unengaged people group actually, in Lebanon called the Lebanese Druze. And so this time last year, we were in Lebanon helping to bring the gospel to these Druze people, and we actually met the very first Druze pastor that I think has like existed in maybe all of human history. So we met this man, we've been able to connect with him, we're going back in the next couple months to begin to equip and train some Druze believers, that's D-R-U-Z-E, not Jews, but Druze. We're going to be able to equip them and empower them and also support them with the finances from the property that we inherited so that they can continue to bring the gospel to this unengaged people group. So that's also worth praising and honoring God about. So God is definitely multiplying our resources. He's doing a good work just in a way that we didn't expect or plan for. So we're excited about that. I'm very grateful. And one of the things I just wanted to say real quickly is if you've been on a mission trip to the third world in the past and you have kind of an adventurous mindset, I'd like to talk with you after the service because my partner for my mission to Nigeria this summer uh, just told me that he's not able to go with me. So I, I need another partner to go, and it would be a fully funded trip, but you would need to have some experience in third world missions. So if that's you, and God is burdening your heart with that, please come and talk with me after the service. With that said, guys, I am honored to be with you here this morning to wrap up your study series in Second Timothy. So I know we're actually in 2 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 5. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to take them out. If you don't, I'm sure the scripture will be on the screen here. But we're going to finish out the fourth chapter of 2 Timothy, starting in verse 5, working through to verse 22. And the title for our sermon this morning is Endure to the End. Endure to the End. Kind of fitting for the fact that we are here coming upon Good Friday, and also in light of the the song that was shared by Julie earlier. So our sermon title is Endure to the End, and we will begin with reading the Word of God in Second Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. And this is what the Lord says in His Scripture. It says, As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, 
and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Cretans has gone to Galatia, Titus to Demaltia. Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for my ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. When you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Also the books and above all the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into His heavenly kingdom. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prissa and Aquila and the household of Onesephorus. Erastus remained at Corinth. I left Trophimus, who was ill, at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brothers. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. And this fulfills our reading of Second Timothy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. God, we remind ourselves this morning that it is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. That it's like a flashlight in a dark world so that we can see the path that we're supposed to walk. And so, God, we come with humility and honor to your word. And God, we ask this morning, would you help open our hearts and open our minds? Help us to sharpen our listening and to focus, recognizing that this is You speaking to us from heaven. That this is a holy moment, ordained and decreed by You before the beginning of time for our good and for Your glory. Put holy awe of Your Word and Your wisdom in our hearts right now, Lord. And I pray that as I preach you would allow me to illuminate your word in such a way that it's impressed upon everybody's heart and mind here that they would become more like you this morning. God, if there's anybody here that's far from you or does not know you, I pray that they would know that this morning's for them. That they didn't just come here by random happenstance, but that they're here by your loving, divine care. And I pray that they would not leave this place without getting right with you. We love you, Lord. We give you this time, and we ask your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name, amen. So we kind of come to the end of Second Timothy, and for those of you who don't know this, 
This is the last known letter of Timothy to the Christian world. So this is it. Uh, this is the last known letter to anybody from Paul. And with that, one of the greatest voices in Christian history goes silent. This is his last known letter. These are his last words that we know of to the Christian world. This is, this is kind of like, like it for Paul. Okay? You can get that sense in the last chapter. There's this seriousness in this sobriety in the way that Paul ends this letter. Because he can feel in his spirit and he can see in his circumstances that his ministry and his life is coming to an end. He says in verse 6, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I've fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also all who have loved His appearing. Paul knows these could quite possibly be his last words to Timothy, and quite possibly be his last words to the Christian church of his time. And we know last words are kind of a big deal, right? We've all seen the cheesy soap operas where they're in the ER and the guy's standing next to his grandmother or something like that. And right before she dies, he's just holding on, waiting for those last couple words to hear. To memorialize, to think about that last little chunk of wisdom. And when we learn history, when we look back upon human history, it's the last words of famous people that we love to share about. I was a history teacher for seven years. These are the things that you love because it draws your audience in. Like, okay, what was the last word of this guy or the last word of that guy? Because we know it's, it's urgent because this is it. The voice is going to go silent at this point. Think about Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman's last words as she was on her deathbed were, Swing low, sweet chariot. Wow. How powerful. Her and her people in fields, suffering this physical labor at the hands of a heavy master, singing the spiritual, swing low, sweet chariot. This idea of God being the the good master, who rules over all, eventually getting the last word on their life, and swinging low to pick them up and to bring them into His everlasting kingdom. Those were the last words of Harriet Tubman. Famous John Adams died on the same day as Thomas Jefferson. They were great friends as the revolution began. But when they eventually started to run against each other for president after the presidency of George Washington, things went really poorly. They began kind of politicizing each other's career and slinging mud at one another and their friendship began to break down. But towards the end of their life, they started the friendship back up and with humility in their old age began to mend fences. And so on the day that both of them passed away, the same exact day, it was July 4th, 
the anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. And John Adams passed away first, and his last words were, Thomas Jefferson lives. Wow, I mean, you think about, there's so much in that, right? So much about the friendship, so much about American history, so much about forgiveness and reconciliation. Last words mean a lot to us because we recognize that there's kind of this, I've got to tell you one last thing moment. Or, hey mom, hey dad, grandma, grandpa, what is it that I really need to know before you're gone? And that's really the situation that we find Paul and Timothy and really Paul and the entire Christian world in at the end of this letter. This is Paul's last known letter. And he's urgent in it. He's very focused in it. 2 Timothy 1, he reminds us to not be ashamed of the gospel. 2 Timothy 2, he tells us to be a good soldier of Jesus. He tells Timothy to be a workman approved, rightly handling the Word of God. 2 Timothy 3, he reminds, he reminds Timothy in by proxy us that in the last days which Paul believed began at the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that in the last days there will be increased difficulty. And, and we know he's talking about the time Timothy's in because he's telling him, like, right now is this time when it's going to happen. So he's, he's kind of delineating between the last days, which we've been in for 2,000 years, and then the end times, okay? So he reminds them that in these last days, which we're in right now, there will be increased difficulty. So he says that he needs to remember the value of the Word of God, that it's truly inspired and profitable for teaching and correction and for instruction in righteousness so that the person of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And then we get to chapter 4, the very end, where we're at this morning. And this is it. This is the last time we're going to hear from this giant of faith. The final chapter of the final epistle of the most prolific biblical writer in human history. And he charges Timothy here at the end on two aspects of his faith. First of all, his preaching of God's word. And secondly, which we'll focus on this morning, his perseverance or endurance as a minister. His perseverance or endurance as a minister. And when I say minister, you might check out. You might go, well, that's not me. Pastor Bill needs to hear this message. But we are called ambassadors of the gospel. Every single one of us. A holy priesthood. A holy nation. And the whole reformation that our forefathers of faith went through in the 16th century was to emphasize that. The priesthood of all believers. That we're all ministers of His word. And we are all called to share the gospel. Amen? Amen. And so his perseverance as a minister. It's really on that second charge of Paul to Timothy that I want to focus on this morning. Talking about enduring to the end. And we have to ask ourselves, what do we mean by endurance here? What, is, what does Paul mean by endurance or, or perseverance, right? Because we all have different ideas of what enduring can look like. Some of us, endurance just means we make it there, right? Like, hey, you're just lucky that I showed up, okay? That's what enduring and persevering looks like to some of us. 
My daughter and I, we run competitively. So we'll do 5Ks, 8Ks. I've done a Spartan race. I'm looking forward to the next Spartan race I'm going to do with a friend of mine in October. And there's two types of runners. I've kind of noticed this over time. One type of runner just says, my goal is to finish. Okay? My goal is to actually make it there. And I respect that. But there's another type of runner, and it's the kind that wants to finish with a medal around their neck. Right? And I'm somewhere in between the two, depending on how healthy I am at the moment, right? But there's two types of runners, and Paul here, throughout Second Timothy, has told us that he's a runner. That he's running to finish the race. And it's easy for us to just kind of think, he just wants us to get to the end. But here Paul tells us what type of runner he is, and what type of runner God is expecting us to be. So Paul gives us his own definition of perseverance and endurance here in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5. He says, as for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. There's Paul's definition. It doesn't sound like just being bedraggled and tired and dehydrated making it to the end, right? So let's look at that. Always be sober-minded. When you look at what Paul is saying here in kind of the original language, he's saying, let the entirety of your life be one of sobriety. Your whole life, you should be sober-minded. And it's interesting because the word sober-minded here, it's really a metaphor. He's saying, in the whole of your life, don't be drunk. That's, that's the literal way of saying it. But that's not, he doesn't mean it literally. Okay, he's using a metaphor here. He's saying in the entirety of your life, be in control of yourself. Right, because in the Old and New Testament, where alcohol consumption really becomes a sin, is when it causes you to be out of control is where it causes you to be someone that God did not intend you to be. That the image of God is twisted and perverted because of a substance being put into your body. And so Paul actually says elsewhere, he says, don't be filled with much wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. So it's this idea of being in control of yourself, of the control being really given to God Instead of to your sin and to your circumstances and to your choices. So it's this potent picture of always being in control. Of always kind of being in the driver's seat of your decisions in a way where you're being really intentional about the way that you live your moral life. So always be sober minded is in the entirety of your life be in control of what you're doing. Secondly, endure suffering. And there's an interesting quote about suffering that Charles Spurgeon said. He said, We are told that the captain of our salvation was made perfect through suffering. Therefore, we who are sinful and who are far from being perfect must not wonder if we are called to pass through suffering too. Shall the head be crowned with thorns and shall the other members of the body be rocked upon the dainty lap of ease? Must Christ pass through the seas of His own blood to win the crown? And are we to walk to heaven dry-shod in silver slippers? No. Our Master's experience teaches us that suffering is necessary. 
And the true-born child of God must not, would not, escape it if he might. So Jesus gave us the perfect picture of enduring suffering. He took his crown off and stepped into human flesh. He literally became lower than some of the angels. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the always existent one, became incarnate, became a man, was born to an impoverished family in the little town of Bethlehem. After his mom had ridden on donkey back for over 20 miles. And when they got there, the Hilton wasn't open, so they had to stay in something worse than Motel 6. And after that, they had to flee to the land of Israel's captivity until he grew older. Imagine that. He went back to Egypt, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And then when he came back, his mom doubted him. His brothers doubted him. All of the nation of Israel began to rage against him until his ministry was fulfilled through gruesome capital punishment. That's God coming into this world. And he gave us an example of how to do it. He was like a sheep before its shearers. Silent recognizing that God was bigger than it all, in control of His suffering, that His Father had never left the throne of the entire universe in all of it. He turned the other cheek, but He never compromised the truth. He was meek, and yet He was firmly planted in truth. But He didn't win the battle through vengeance. He didn't win the battle through retribution. He won the battle through enduring suffering. And what Paul understands is that people are going to mess with you in this life. People are going to persecute you. Those who are closest to you are going to let you down. People are going to punk you in in common vernacular, okay? And Paul is saying the way we respond matters. Because it's an issue of how people see the gospel. You know, there are people right now in Islam, all throughout the Middle East, who are converting to Christ. And the number one most impactful scripture in their conversion is the one that says that God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. You see, Jesus endured suffering at the hands of His accusers without retribution and vengeance, and He showed them something. See, when we just take arms and we just retaliate, we're like everybody else. And we show that we believe in the power of our fists more than the power of God. But as these Muslim people open this up and they read this and they know, we kill, we murder, we cut off the fingers and toes of the infidels amongst them and overtax them. And they look and they see that God is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And that he died on the cross for his enemies. You know what they say? They say, truly, this is God. If there were to be a God, this is what God would do. He wouldn't come and kill his enemies. He would save them and make them his friends. 
And so through the enduring of suffering of Jesus Christ, we see a picture of how we are supposed to display the power and the glory of God through the gospel. Scripture gives us a lot of examples of this. Paul tells us not to return evil with evil, but to return evil with good. And it has this reverse effect where people expect you to be a jerk to them. But when you return it with love, it like sets them on tilt. Right? And now they're like, oh, i got to watch and listen. What's going on here? Jesus says, turn the other cheek. When someone asks you for their, your cloak, give them another one. The whole idea of going the extra mile comes from Jesus. Jesus said, if a Roman soldier asks you to carry his gear for a mile, carry it an extra mile. God, this principle of enduring suffering in the face of opposition has turned the modern world on its head. It's where Gandhi got his idea of nonviolence. It's where Martin Luther King Jr. got his idea of activism. And look at what they did to change the world. And Malcolm X, who had the opposite idea, at the end of his life repented and said that they did it the right way. It's upside down to us, but when you think about it, it shows the wisdom of God. It shows that God gets a deeper understanding of how things are won, and how victory is had, and how truth is exalted. So he says, always be in control of yourself, endure suffering like Jesus did, and then thirdly, work as an evangelist. And I love this because, you know, Paul just messes up our sensibilities about the gifts of the Holy Spirit right here. And like the ordinances and all that sort of stuff. He tells Timothy, who has been sent to Ephesus to do what? To be a pastor. To be an elder. He, he's, he's sending Timothy here and he says, hey, Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. And it just scandalizes our sensibility of giftedness here, right? Because we like to be like, well, that guy's a missionary, but I'm not. That guy's a pastor, but I'm not. Or I'm a pastor, I don't need to be sharing the gospel all the time because I'm handling the word of God with my people and I'm counseling folks. But here he looks at what was at least temporarily the senior pastor of Ephesus at the time, and he says, do the work of an evangelist. He doesn't say be an evangelist. He doesn't say center all of your time and all of your efforts on evangelism. That would have caused him to function outside of his gifting all the time and it wouldn't have blessed the church. But he's saying while you function in your giftedness, while you do the thing you know that God made you to do by the power of the Holy Spirit, don't neglect to share the gospel with others. I just love it. Because if any of us are thinking like, well, I'm just not that guy. You know, like, I'm just not that gal. Like, you know, we go to the park and I see, I see Kirk Cameron sharing the gospel. I see Ray Comfort sharing the gospel. But that's not my thing. And here Paul is looking and he's going, that's everybody's thing. You should be doing it as well. So do the work of an evangelist, even if that is not your gift. And then lastly, fulfill your ministry. Fulfill your ministry. And this is a potent reminder that God had given a personal calling to Timothy. And you know what? He's given a personal calling to all of us. Scripture says that we are all gifted in some way by the power of the Holy Spirit. So, you might remember that there's a group of, of believers that actually surrounded Timothy at a certain point, prophesied a calling over him, and prayed and commissioned him for it. 
So Paul, years later, is speaking to Timothy now, and he's going, remember where you've come from, dude. Remember and recognize that you've got a calling in your life, and you need to fulfill it all the way to the end. This wasn't like season or something. This is your life. This is your purpose. This is what I made you to do here on this earth for the good of my people and the glory of my name. So fulfill it. And this is what he says endurance looks like. To always be in control of yourself in a God-glorifying way. To endure suffering like Jesus did. To work as an evangelist sharing the gospel even if it's not in your wheelhouse. And to fulfill the personal calling that you know God has given you. And I know what some of us are thinking right now. Like, man, that's hard. <laughs> this, this is like a high standard here, right? It is. It is hard. It is a high standard. A lot of times, with this sort of stuff in Scripture... The, the high and lofty calling that God has given us. Be holy as I am holy. All that sort of stuff. We do like this weird like theological wiggling with it. You know. We're kind of like well but mercy. You know. Well but grace. Right. Well we're all imperfect. Right. That's how we like to begin a conversation. Paul doesn't do that. He's just like dude. Be in control yourself, endure suffering, work as an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Come on, let's go. This is what endurance looks like. But a lot of us, including myself at times, we're like the little engine that couldn't, right? And we're walking around like, I think I can't. I think I can't, you know? I, I, I think I can't. And when we look at this, that's, that's kind of why we do the theological wheeling. Because we've got this weak, sort of fallen sense of what we can actually do in Jesus. But when you understand Paul's heart, and you understand his last words in the context of his whole ministry, it's so beautiful what he's saying here. You've really got to understand Paul. See, Paul has a really well-developed worldview of sanctification and justification. So a quick little theological background here. Justification is that point at the beginning of your relationship with Jesus where what you experience is you repenting of your sins and placing your faith in Jesus Christ. What God is doing is He's coming by the power of His Holy Spirit and He's drawing you to Himself. He's, he's helping you to understand by the power of the Holy Spirit that, that you've sinned. And that you've fallen short of His glory and that you need to repent and trust in Jesus, the one who, who died in your place, who lived the life that we couldn't live, who died the death that we deserve and conquered all the enemies that we couldn't conquer so that if we just put our faith in Him, we would be saved. So that's justification. And it's, it's a moment in time. Some of us might not experience it like that. We might look back eventually and go, oh dang, like Jesus saved me, right? If you're like me, you kind of experience that moment. But nevertheless, it's not an ongoing thing. You don't work for it because you can't. There, there aren't enough good things that you could ever do to actually like earn righteousness with God. It happens at one moment where you're justified. Where God looks at you as judge and sees that you've accepted the payment for your sin 
given by Jesus Christ. But what comes right after justification is the entire process leading to glorification where we go to be with God forever in paradise. And that in-between stage between justification and glorification is called sanctification. Being set apart is what the word sanctified means. So while we're justified, there's this whole life that we live with Jesus to become more like Him. Where His Spirit is working in us to give us new desires and a new heart. And He's using our, His Word to shape our desires. That's the process of sanctification. And what Paul understood is that during the process of sanctification, the goal and the effort that we're supposed to set forth is perfection. That it's not like grace gives us this idea of like, we get to be imperfect till we meet Jesus. It actually doesn't do that. And this is kind of the mystery of sanctification. Paul goes, look, I know you're not going to achieve perfection, but it's the goal. And so grace doesn't give us the ability during the process of sanctification to be who we've always been. What Paul understood is that God's grace from Jesus Christ gives us space to become more like Christ. It gives us the ability to imperfectly seek the perfection and holiness of Jesus. And that's the standard. So Paul will never shirk away from an ultimate standard. While also knowing that God's given us grace to have space to go. And so, while he gives us this goal... What's really important to recognize is that he's serious about it. He's ran this whole race trying to be always sober-minded. Trying to always endure suffering. Trying to always work as an evangelist. And always fulfill his ministry. And grace was never an excuse to not make it. It was only a blessed space to not be condemned when he didn't. And so he holds the standard... And we look at it, and, and it's, you know, as I say that, I think we can grow a little bit more to love it, a little bit more to be excited about it, but there's one more thing that we have to see here, and that's the, that's the how of the what. Right? The how of the what. Because the what is always be in control of yourself, endure suffering, work as an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, and, and we struggle with it, right? That's why we try to explain like, well, there's grace and there's mercy and all this other sort of stuff because we realize this is a high standard. And most of us here right now are like, I'm not, I'm not meeting it. I feel condemned. Pastor, you kind of messed me up this morning. I was just supposed to be encouraged, warm and well-filled, ready for Easter, right? Like, what's going on here? So, so it's why we're struggling with it because we've just been given the what and we need to hear the how. And the cool thing is, is that Paul tells us the how here, and he showed us the how for his entire ministry. So that's what I want to finish up here, because we've seen the what, and some of us might be going, I get the standard, man, I get what you're even saying about grace, but like, I've been with Jesus for 50 years, and it's not working out the way that I had planned, right? So so we've got to look at the how. We've got to remind ourselves of how Paul persevered this way in the race to the end, not to just come to the end and be like, I made it, but to come to the end and get a crown, right? To come to the end and actually be a victor. So while we collectively groan inside sometimes when these standards are brought before us, 
Paul reminds us of the how in the rest of his text. And I want you to remember this acronym so that you can remember the how that Paul is talking about here as well. The acronym is SET. S-E-D. So go ahead and write down SET. Paul wants us to be SET like he was. Think about in a race. It's ready, what, go. Ready, good. Ready, right? So SET means you're in the position to actually run well. And that's what we're talking about this morning. How do we get in position to run well? Paul wants us to be set, and you find this acronym actually in our text. I don't think he intended it to be there, but perhaps the divine author of the text wanted it in some way, shape, form. But first, the S, he was strengthened by the Holy Spirit. He was strengthened by the Holy Spirit. He was not doing this in his own strength. And he tells All the churches that in every epistle that he writes, that it's God's grace strengthening him. You see it in verse 17. As he's talking about everything that he's gone through, he says, But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. This is really similar to what he said in other texts where he says, I worked harder than everybody else. Second Corinthians, right? I worked harder than everybody, but not me, Christ in me. We sang about it this morning, right? Not me, Christ in me. And see, this is where his developed understanding of sanctification comes in. See, in justification, Paul would argue that man is largely passive. He's depraved, and as he is repenting and placing faith in God, it's a gift of God's drawing. The, the, the person isn't doing it against his will, but couldn't do it without God completely causing the thing to happen, right? So it's, it's God who saves us in totality. But then in sanctification, you can see him putting more of the onus on the believer, because you go, going, man, you've got the Holy Spirit in you now. Your heart's being changed and transformed, and... and Yet, at the same time, he sees sanctification as a grace. He sees it as something you can't really grow to be more like Jesus on your own. You can't do it in the flesh. You can't muster enough strength. You've got to find a way to do it where you're abiding in Jesus. You've got to be finding a way to do it where He is everything in your life. And that's why your pastors will always talk to you about your alone time in the morning. You know, there's a study done by uh, Dr. Woodrow Cole. He used to be the president of uh, uh, Back to the Bible. And they did this study. They were trying to figure out how the Bible affects people's lives. And they found if you're engaging with the Bible once a week, that could be like right now on Sunday or just one devotional time a week, that there is a negligible effect on your life. Really nothing happens. Twice a week, same thing. Three times a week, there's a little blip on the map, but really not anything. But at four times a week, they found that there was this exponential increase in the way Bible study affected people's lives. They found that in regards to contentedness, it goes up 35%. They found in regards to infidelity, it goes down 55%. They found in regards to drug use and alcohol abuse, that it goes down 45%. 
On the positive side, they found that people share the gospel 180% more when they're engaging with the Bible only four times a week. And 280% more those people are discipling other people in their church. That's amazing. Four times a week or more, this huge effect. And what did Jesus tell us? He told us you can't live on yesterday's bread. Right? You can't just come and fill up on Sunday and expect it to do anything in your life. He showed us that we need our daily bread. We need to come to Him every day, allowing His Word to soak into our hearts, to allow us to repent and place our faith in Him every single day. So, strengthened by the Holy Spirit, and Paul sees this as the first and most important step to being set that he always has his relationship with God on point, ensuring that he's seeking him every single day. The second one, the E, is edified from other believers. Edified means to be built up. So built up by other believers. Look in verse 9. Do your best to come to me soon. Here's Paul, the guy that we kind of see as like, oh, Paul's the, Paul's the lone wolf apostle. Paul's Paul's like the lone ranger out there just doing his own thing. He desperately wants Timothy to come back. And when he talks about going to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, he goes, I've longed to be with you so that you would share something with me and I would share something with you. Verse 10, he says that Demas has deserted him and if you've read his other epistles, this stuff breaks his heart. So Demas, in love with the present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. But then he talks about these other people who he's been in ministry with. Cretans and Titus and Luke, who's still with him. And listen to this. Mark, who he had this falling out with in the, in the very beginning of Mark's ministry, now at the end, there's been reconciliation because, because Paul knows, because he's been strengthened in Jesus. When you have a disagreement with a brother, you never let it last. You seek reconciliation and you make sure as much as it is up to you that you have reconciliation there. So now he's saying of Mark, they had this big falling out. Now he's saying, get Mark and bring him back to me for he's useful to my ministry. So here's a guy who's saying he's useful to me. You've also got Tychicus. In verse 19, he says, greet Prissa and Aquila and the household of Onesephorus, who a whole epistle was written about. Erastus remained in Corinth. And I left Trophimus, who was ill at Miletus. Do your best to come before winter. He wants him to be there. Eubulus sends greetings to you, as do Pudens, Linus, and Claudia, and all the brothers. So he is surrounded in fellowship, and he needs them. He wants them. He asks for their presence. He says, I can't wait to be with you so that we can share encouragement with one another. So he was consistently seeking to be built up from other believers. He would have believed in the home group model or the cell group model or the Bible study model because he knew that everybody needed more in their faith than just a little filling on Sunday morning. And the last one in our acronym is T for trusting in the sovereignty of God. Trusting in the sovereignty of God. Verse 18, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. This is a man who had received the cat of nine tails minus one multiple times. They say minus one because one more they thought you would just die. 
This was a man who was left in the open ocean for 24 hours. This was a man who had experienced the deepest of desertion from those he cared about the most. And yet he is able to say, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. How could Paul make it to the end? He knew who was on the throne. He would have known who was on the throne if his child passed away at a young age. He would have known who was on the throne if he had a wife who had cancer. He knew who was on the throne when he was bobbing in the open ocean. You see, when you trust in the sovereignty of God, every circumstance can be seen and understood in a way where you maintain faith. Because you're able to say, you know what? God has a purpose in it. God has a plan in it. God's ways are high above my ways. His thoughts are high above my thoughts. God will use this for His glory. Think about Jim Elliot, right? Jim Elliot in the mid-20th century, everybody said, you could be a senator. You could be president. Why are you going to fly to this country in South America? You're going to get killed. And guess what? He did. Within 24 hours, Jim Elliot is killed. Right? But led to the biggest collegiate missions movement in human history. College students looked at that man and he said, they said, why did he do that? Oh, there's unengaged people groups? There's people still who don't know the gospel, who don't have access to the gospel? There's no churches? There's no Bibles? We gotta go. The 20th century had more missionaries sent out than any other century that we know of in human history. Look at that. God will rescue us from every evil deed and bring us safely into his heavenly kingdom. Remember, he says, don't fear man who can kill the body, but instead fear God who can kill the body and throw the soul into hell. Right? What he's saying here is when you fear God, you'll begin to recognize, well, he's overall and he'll use it in some miraculous way for his glory and our good. But even if I'm like taken out at 15... Because I've trusted in Jesus, I'll get safe to the final destination. Right? Maybe there was this little hiccup or something that I felt, but the final destination, I will be there. Paul knew who was on the throne practically. His theology of sovereignty was in his heart. And we need to make sure it's in our hearts too. Because our theology is only as good as the connection it has between our heart and our mind. You know, if we talk about God's sovereignty, if we talk about Him being on the throne, if we talk about Him being able to save and all these other sort of things, but it doesn't get into our heart, it will be of no practical use for us. And many are in that place. Many of us, we go home and we grumble and and we squirm under the weight and we wave our fist at God, I know I have in the last six months. And we show ourselves to, to not have a practical theology. To not have a theology that has found its way into our hearts. Paul had that we need that to be set. So set has to be the victory acronym of our lives, strengthened by the Holy Spirit, edified from other believers, and trusting in the sovereignty of God in all circumstances. This is Paul's workout routine to ensure that he finishes the race. And you know, this morning, some of us aren't set. I know over the past six months, I hadn't been set. 
Some of us look like a homeless guy that accidentally stumbled into a road on 5K. Right? What's going on here? Why is everyone running? I think I'm supposed to run too. We've got to ask ourselves why that is. Why is it that we're not set? Maybe for some of us this morning, you believe but you don't trust. You know, but you're not leaning on the everlasting God. Maybe some of us trust, but we've set the standard too low. We've used grace as an excuse to be the same person we've always been. Instead of enabling us to have space to become more like Christ. Maybe some of us this morning are trying to do it in our own strength. We know the standard, we're an A-type, but we've got too much in our life, and Jesus becomes a side dish in our day. We're not biding in Him the way that we should and being strengthened. Or maybe this morning you're in a different place altogether. You haven't even begun the race. You've come in here, and you're not following Christ. You don't have a relationship with Him. Well, let me tell you, friend, there is no life in Christ. Whatever you have tried to find, it will let you down or it already has. But Jesus says, for all those who come to me, I won't cast them off and I'll hold on to them forever. But he says, for those who don't come to me, they're already condemned because they're not coming to the very one that can save their soul. He died on the cross for your sins. And the way we start the race is by recognizing I'm a sinner. I've messed up. I'm broken. And I can only be set and make it to the end if I turn from my old life and place my faith in Jesus Christ. If that's you today, I'd like to pray with you. Let's bow our heads and our hearts. God, I thank you for this time. And I want to lift up my brothers and sisters here first this morning. Who maybe they're just in a place where their belief has not fully made it to their heart. That they're real cerebral with the way they follow you. And they're just not trusting right now. They're trusting in themselves. They're trying to make it on their own. They're trusting in their job and the money and the car running correctly and AC being on for the summer. And they're not trusting in you. Lord, would you just use this time to help them to recognize that they need to turn back to you. They need to ask for forgiveness. Lord, I pray for those who are here and they're going, man, I'm believing, but I'm just, I'm not really, my standard isn't God's standard. Help them to see grace properly this morning. And help them to recognize that while the standard is high, you've given us grace to be able to slowly grow by the power of your Holy Spirit. Help them to set that standard again and to focus on the bullseye. Then Lord, maybe there's some here this morning that just don't know you. Maybe this conversation is foreign to them or strange. If that's you, I know God brought you here for a reason. And He's tugging on your heart. And you can feel it. All He would desire for you to do is to recognize that He paid the price for you. That you can just repent of your sins and place your faith in Jesus. And the best way to do that is just to say, God, I'm so sorry for the things that I've done. Would you forgive me of my sins? I recognize that you died on the cross for me, and I now want to commit my whole life to you as Lord. God, I pray for them that they would be saved this morning and brought into your kingdom 
and they would learn in this church how to be set to finish the race. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.